Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, Sharon presents Part 1 of the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 7. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Okay, I want to ask you a question. Who was pregnant first, Elizabeth or Mary? Right. And the angel said, your kinswoman, Elizabeth, in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month. So, John the Baptist is six months older than Jesus. We know that. Now, 30 years later, John the Baptist will begin his ministry six months before Jesus because they started their ministries when they were each 30 years old. John is first. He is the forerunner. He's six months before Jesus. He's the forerunner of the Messiah. He has quite a ministry going. Disciples are coming to him. He's preaching with great conviction, full of the Holy Spirit, and his message is not easy to hear. He doesn't pull any punches. He's a very very, very strong preacher. And when John saw Jesus, he knew this is what he's been preaching for. This is, he's done. He's done. All his disciples, all his ministry, this is the reason he's been preaching. John bore witness to Jesus Christ and he cried, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me for he was before me. He who comes after me ranks before me for he was before me. Yes, he was six months before him. But six months after him, he comes after him, but he ranks before him. He's acknowledging the divinity of Jesus Christ right there. He knows, John knows by the power of the Holy Spirit, he knows that this is the divinity of Jesus Christ. And Elizabeth knows it. She too is full of the Holy Spirit, yet she bows before Mary. She's six months along and Mary's just got a few cells, you know, dividing. And she says, why is it granted me that the mother of my Lord? She knows it is her Lord. She knows it's Jesus. She knows of the divinity inside of Mary. Why is it that my Lord would come to me? So she acknowledges the divinity of Jesus Christ. Both Elizabeth and John are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's why they have wisdom, understanding, knowledge. That's why they know. The angel Gabriel had come to Zechariah in the temple, John's father, and he said to him, your son will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from its mother's womb. And your son will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And Zechariah, your son will make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That's his job, to prepare the people in advance of Messiah. He has six months to do it. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For John will go before the Lord to prepare his way. He is the forerunner to give knowledge of salvation to his people for the forgiveness of their sins. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And guess what? Tonight in Luke 7, that's exactly where John the Baptist finds himself. Sitting in a dark, dank prison cell. In darkness and in the shadow of death. It was John himself who sat there now in the shadow of death, locked up by Herod. Matthew 14 tells us that Herod had taken John and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of Herod's brother Philip. They were in an unlawful relationship according to Jewish law, and John had told Herod, it is against the law for you to have your brother's wife. And Herod would have killed John, it says, but Herod was afraid of the people. 
because John had quite a following. He had many disciples that were listening to his preaching and believing his Holy Spirit message. And the people thought that John was one who spoke for God. The people knew the truth. They said, he's one who speaks for God. You can't hurt John. So there the greatest prophet of all time sits in a dark, dank prison cell doubting. Did I hear this right? And in Luke 7 tonight, the disciples of John the Baptist told him of all these things. And John called to himself two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord saying this, are you he who is to come or shall we look for another? John wants to know, are you him? Are you the Messiah? Did he get it wrong? Does he have it right? He's sitting in this prison wondering. And when the men had come to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you he who is to come or shall we look for another? And in that hour, in that exact hour, Jesus does something. He goes out and does many more miracles. Before he even answers John back, he cured many diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And many that were blind were bestowed sight in that hour. He goes out and does all these miracles. Now, why would Jesus immediately in that same hour go and do all these miracles and heal the sight and all these things? to fulfill Isaiah 35 and so that John would know for sure this is him. Isaiah 35 says, then shall the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man live as an hood and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. It's, it's Isaiah, it's, it's Handel's Messiah. He fulfills every single one of them. Jesus answered them, go and tell John, go and tell John what you have seen, what you have heard. The blind shall receive sight, the lame will walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf can hear, the dead are raised up. He did that in Nain. The poor have had good news preached to them. I am him. That's what he's saying. I am, I am, I am. Tell John. You saw it in this last hour. I just did all these things for you to be eyewitnesses. So you could see in here and go tell John. And blessed is he who takes no offense at me. So they go back and tell their master, their disciples of John, and they go back and tell him everything they'd seen and everything they'd heard. It's him, John. It's him. It's him. How encouraging that must have been for John. His job's over. His job's done. He's the forerunner to Jesus Christ. And when the messengers of John had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Is that what you wanted to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Well, that's no big sight in the desert. It happens all the time. There's reeds blowing in the wind all the time in the desert. What'd you go out to see? Because John is a reed that will not be shaken. John doesn't sway. His message doesn't go back and forth for itchy ears. Like St. Paul told Timothy, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but will have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own likings. John's message will not change. John is not a reed to be shaken in the world. He is firm in his conviction. He is delivering a serious message with great conviction that will not be moved or swayed or blown in the wind. Repent, you sinners! He tells it like it is. Open your hearts. Messiah is coming. Prepare the way. He is not a reed to be shaken by the wind. Then what did you go out to see, said Jesus? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, those who are gorgeously appareled live in luxury. They're in the king's courts. Is that what you came out to see? A guy in soft, beautiful clothes? Well, John doesn't wear a soft raiment. John wears camel hair and it's scratchy and itchy. And he doesn't usually eat much because he's almost always fasting. He's very thin. He lives a very austere life. Maybe an occasional locust here or there. Sometimes he has a little honeycomb for extra sermon energy. 
He lives a very austere life. He's a little out there. He lives in the desert wilderness. What did you go out there to see? Because people are coming out in droves to the desert for no reason. I mean, everything's happening at the temple. You're coming way out here for what? What did you come out to the desert to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is of he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare the way before thee. Oh, wow, direct fulfillment of Malachi 3. It's exactly what Malachi said. Behold, I send my messenger to prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Isaiah also said it. Isaiah 40, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. I tell you, says Jesus, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. Who's that? Who's least in the kingdom of God? There is one greater than John. The one who's least in the kingdom of God. Who is it? Well, remember Jesus brought a lot of little children around himself. He said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. Don't hold them back. For to such as these belong the kingdom of heaven. Is this who he's talking about, kids? Hmm. Who's the least? Who's the very least in the kingdom of God? The humble, the meek, the lowly of God. Mary says it in her Magnificat. He has scattered the proud in their imagination of their heart. He's put down the mighty from their thrones. He has exalted those of low degree. Who's the least in the kingdom of God? The meekest one, the humblest one on the face of the entire earth. Who is God? Who, who, who would humble himself. Who is this God that would humble himself and be baptized by a man, submit to baptism by another man? Who is this God that would, would come into the, the body of a little bitty baby who needs to be burped and fed and, and diapered? Who is this humble, meek God? Who is this that's least in the kingdom of heaven? Who's going to be laid in a feeding trough for beasts, bread for the world? And go lower than that, lower than being laid in a feeding trough. He's going to put himself into a piece of bread, an inanimate object. And he's going to dwell there in full bodily form, true presence in bread. To feed the life of the world for all time. Who is this least in the kingdom of heaven? Paul says it this way. Have this mind among yourself, which was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not think equality with God was something to be grasped. But he emptied himself. He took the form of a slave, a servant, a doulos, being born in the likeness of men. God of the universe takes on human form, baby flesh. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. Even more than that, he becomes obedient to death, even to death on a cross. A bloody, gory death for you and for me. <laughs> Torn to shreds, ripped to shreds. That's how humble this man, God-man, is. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. So who is least? Who is the meekest? Who is the most humble in the kingdom of God? There is one. Jesus is the least in the kingdom of God, and he's greater than John the Baptist. They're the final two witnesses of the Old Covenant coming into the New Covenant. They're in the book of Revelation as well, chapter 13, hidden. I tell you, among those born of woman, none is greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. It's a little riddle for you. 
Jesus is the one greater than John. But John had to come. He had a mission. He had to announce the greatest one coming, the humblest one, the one who is greater than he. I must minimize so he can maximize. I must decrease so he can increase. My job's done so his can continue. When they heard this, all the people and the tax collectors justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John. The sinners submitted to it. Their hearts were open. Their hearts were contrite. They went into the Jordan River, into the dirty Jordan River, and got baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by them. Uh Uh-uh. What did you come out here to see then? The Pharisees would go all the way out to the desert wilderness to scope out the competition. Why are all the people going out here? They're not coming to temple anywhere. They're all chasing out to the desert to see this new preacher in town. What is he saying? Who is he? What's he doing? Is he the Messiah? They're not going to lower themselves to a baptism of repentance, especially when they have nothing to repent of because they keep the law to perfection. Why would we possibly do that? Jesus, who is perfection, sinless, he's perfection of the Father's love, he does submit to a baptism in water in the dirty Jordan River by another man. He had no need for it. He's the humblest. He's the meekest on the face of the earth. There is one greater than John, one more humble, one more meek. The Pharisees are offered to be washed clean from sin in the Jordan River. Come, be baptized by John. Even Naaman in the Old Testament, the Assyrian general, humbled himself, got into the dirty Jordan River even when they had better rivers in Damascus. But the Pharisees won't do it. Absolutely not. They needed no baptism. They were perfect. And Jesus had just said... On the Sermon on the Plain, blessed are you poor, yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you that hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they exclude you, and when they revile you, and cast out your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and be glad. Leap for joy, and behold, your reward is great in heaven. And so their fathers did to the prophets. You stiff-necked people, this is Stephen, right before he dies, the first martyr. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit, just like your fathers did. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand. That's John the Baptist, the last one. They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. But John had the mission to announce this last one, this righteous one, the humblest one, the meekest one, the least in the kingdom of God, the one that was greater than he. And then Jesus tells a parable. And it's a tiny little parable. And, and what a parable is, it's a little story with a great big idea. So he's talking to the Pharisees and Jesus says, to what shall I compare this men of this generation? What are they like to the Pharisees? And he says, they are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. Now, do grown men full of arrogant pride like to be called children? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We piped to you and you did not dance. We wailed to you and you did not weep. What is this? Children in the marketplace. They want to play different games. And the biggest games in first century antiquity, the biggest events in Jewish life were funerals and weddings. They both lasted seven days. They were the big events of life. Someone dies, someone gets married. Someone dies, someone gets married. Both are to be celebrated. Two biggest events, funerals and weddings. We piped for you and you did not dance. We wailed and you did not weep. Do you want to play funeral today or wedding? You know how children role play? Do you want to play funeral or wedding? We want to play wedding. We want to play wedding. We want to play funeral. We want to play funeral. We want to play wedding. We want to play funeral. Fine. I'm leaving. I'm not playing either. 
That's what the Pharisees were being like. Children. Children. John the Baptist came with the funeral song, the funeral dirge. John the Baptist has come eating no bread, drinking no wine, and you say John has a demon. John played the funeral dirge. Repent! 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 The time is at hand. Repent! Turn from your sins. That's the funeral dirge. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, behold, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus played a wedding march. The bridegroom of love has come to save everyone. Eat, drink. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Look at the fruits of what each ministry did. That's the children. The fruit of the womb is the children. Wisdom's children are the fruits of the ministries. The wisdom of God wasn't work through John. He had to do his mission. He had to prepare the way. That's what God created him for. The wisdom of God was at work through Jesus, the bridegroom. Both ministries bore good fruit that glorified God's eternal plan. Look at the fruits of what each ministry did. The fruits are wisdom's children. What type of children did they bear through their missions? Children of God. And it was all children of God, not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well, for all of Abraham's children, all the stars in the sky, all the sands on the seashore. Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children, the fruits of John and the fruits of Jesus. They're both eternal fruit, whether it's a funeral dirge or a wedding dance. Both ministries were part of God's salvific plan for mankind, all humanity. Wisdom is vindicated by all her children. So John was like the best man. He prepared, got everything in order, prepared the way. Jesus was the bridegroom. John always points to Jesus, always. He must increase, I must decrease, my ministry's over. It was awesome. I had a lot of disciples. It was going great, but I'm not him. He's him. Go with him. John played a funeral dirge. Jesus plays the wedding march. Both men were needed in God's salvific plan from death into life. The wedding feast, the banquet feast of the Lamb of God. The Pharisees were behaving like spoiled children who wanted to take their ball and go home. They don't want to play anymore because they didn't get their way. No matter what tune is being played, the funeral dirge by John or the wedding march by Jesus, they're not going to participate in God's plan. So they're going to silence the funeral dirge. They're going to silence the prophet's voice and they're going to rejoice that he's dead. They'll, that's a funeral dirge they can get on board with. And they're going to silence the wedding music and crucify it on a cross. They don't want to hear his message either. But then it's the resurrection reprisal. Yes, wisdom is vindicated for all her children, all Adam's offspring. Like Luke takes us all the way back to Adam, universal man. And John the Baptist will be the first one when Jesus harrows Hades. He's with the good thief on the cross. He says, you will see paradise with me that day. Dismas is with him. But John would have been like the first one out. You see John in all the pictures already with his halo. He's one of the first one, probably the last one down. So the first one out in the icons. He's always pointing to Jesus Christ. Always pointing to Jesus Christ. In John's version, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, Behold! Behold, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's got all these disciples. He's baptizing down by the river. But the minute he sees Jesus coming, he says, behold the Lamb of God. I've seen him. I've borne witness. This is the Son of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was his mission. That's why he came, to set sinners free. They had been waiting for God to provide a lamb since Genesis chapter 22. 
You know that. Just like Isaac carried the wood on his back up the same mountain range, Mount Moriah is one of Calvary's mountains. And Isaac says to his father, Abraham, my father, here I am, son. Isaac said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb? Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? The burnt offering was a sin offering for atonement of sin. Where's the lamb? Abraham said, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. There's tension in that story because it's supposed to be Isaac. But Abraham says, God will provide a lamb. And God does provide a lamb because of Abraham's faith. God stops Abraham in the nick of time and says, your faith has saved you. But God will not spare his only son with the wood on his back up the same mountain range. Years later, God will provide a lamb just as promised. What Abraham found in the thicket was a ram, not a lamb. And they used the ram that time, the ram that was caught in the thicket. But God will provide a lamb one day. And it will be a lamb caught up in a thicket of thorns also. And it's Jesus Christ, the lamb of God. God will provide for himself a lamb, a burnt offering, my son. The Lord will provide. And it is said on that day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the Lord says to Abraham, by your descendants shall all the nations of the earth bless themselves because you, Abraham, have obeyed my voice. God will provide a lamb. And see how this lamb's blood is for every continent on the face of the earth, all humanity, the sin offering, the lamb of God. Behold, behold the lamb of God. He's also the final Passover lamb with the Exodus story, but we won't go into that. But we say at Mass every time, Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world, have mercy on us. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world, have mercy on us. Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world, grant us peace. And then the priest holds up the Eucharist. It's been transubstantiated. It's the true presence of God. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Blessed are those called to the supper of the Lamb. So every time we go to Mass, we're going to the supper of the Lamb. Once for all, it's an unbloodied sacrifice. We're sacrificing the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And we say, all of us, what the centurion said tonight, we say, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, the roof of my mouth. But only say the word and your servant will be healed. Me, thy servant will be healed. Because that's what the Eucharist does. It heals us. That's why he came to heal us from all the woundedness of living in this disordered world. Only say the word and my soul shall be healed. The word of God is very, very powerful. We're seeing this all the way through Luke. His word has authority. His word has conviction. His word has power, healing power. The word of God is amazing. And we see that tonight in the healing of the centurion's servant. Now imagine that you are living by the Sea of Galilee in this time, first century. Israel is beautiful, it's quiet, it's up, away from the city. And then they come. They come. The Roman Empire is spreading throughout the land. They're coming everywhere. They're advancing. They have troops. They have trained army. And Mary's sitting there mending by the Sea of Galilee And all of a sudden, the Roman soldiers are coming into town. This is what it was like in that day. We know that from Luke 2, that in those days, a decree had gone out from Caesar Augustus. He was the very first emperor of Rome, that all the world should be enrolled. Now go 30 years later, 
30 years. Jesus will be 30 now. And it's the 15th year of the second emperor of the Roman Empire, Tiberius Caesar. Pontius Pilate, a Roman prefect, has been made governor of Judea where they live. And Herod, a puppet king, an Edomite, half Jew, half Edomite, he has been made the Tetrarch of Galilee. But the first guy was Julius Caesar, and you know him from your history studies. He died in 44 BC, 44 years before Christ, on the Ides of March. On March 15th, Caesar, Julius Caesar, was assassinated in Rome. It was a conspiracy of Roman senators led by Cassius, Decimus, and Brutus. They had concealed knives under their garments and their robes, and they assassinate Julius Caesar. And he says before he dies in that Shakespeare play, even you, Brutus, my child, even you. Julius Caesar is dead. He had named his nephew Octavius. He didn't have his own children. He had a nephew, Octavius. He gave everything, his whole will and testament to his adopted son and sole heir. Now, Octavius at the time was 18 years old. And young Octavius was advised, he got much counsel not to accept his uncle's bequest because he was only 18. He wasn't prepared to deal with the hazards in the Roman politics and power. Any male kid who's 18 and you tell them not to do it, what are they going to do? They're going to do it, right? And so he accepts Julius Caesar's will, and he becomes the first emperor of the new Roman Empire. Octavius changes his name to Augustus, Caesar Augustus. Two years later, in 42 BC, 42 years before Christ, two years after his death, the Roman Senate declare posthumously that Julius Caesar is a god, that he is deity. This is the fastest growing religion in the Roman Empire, the imperial cult, that the emperors are now gods, okay? And it's the deity of men, men making themselves gods. That's way back in Genesis. We can be our own gods, right? Right at the time of his death, there's a big comet in the sky, Caesar's Comet. It lasted for seven days, and everyone thought it was a sign that he really is a god. Caesar's Comet. 44 BC, the most famous comet of antiquity, seven-day visitation interpreted by the Romans as a sign of the deification of the recently assassinated Caesar, Julius Caesar. Virgil writes about it, the poet Virgil. He says, never did fearsome comets so often blaze the sky. Ovid writes about it in his Metamorphoses. He says, take up Caesar's spirit from his murdered corpse and change it into a star so that the deified Julius may always look down from his high temple on our capital and Roman forum. Shakespeare writes about it, when beggars die, there are no comets seen, but when the heavens themselves declare the death of princes. Octavius is going to use this politically. The nephew, he's now Caesar Augustus, he's going to use that comet and the deification of Caesar to his own advantage politically. He will have coins minted with temple to Caesar, the god, and he'll show the comet, the star in the sky. Julius Caesar is a god. He'll have a temple built in Rome at the Forum, the temple of Julius Caesar, a god, called the Temple of the Comet Star. It's still there to this day. You can go to the Roman Forum and see the Temple of Julius. People still put flowers on the altar there. He had coins minted with the star, the comet, the comet of Caesar. Caesar is God. Julius Caesar is God. Julius Caesar is God. There's his temple. These coins sell to this day for $19,000 for one of these coins. It's history. If Julius Caesar was God, then Octavian, his son, is son of God. That was part one of the Gospel of Luke, chapter seven on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.